Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast where we have conversations about pop culture, parenting, and identity politics, all from a multicultural perspective. I'm your host, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an author, a journalist, a mother of three, and a self-proclaimed diversity diva. I'm really glad you're here because we have a lot to talk about. On episode 12 of My American Melting Pot, we're talking about how to raise healthy multiracial children. And I'm not talking about ways to make them eat their vegetables and get enough exercise. We're going to be talking about how to raise children who are more than one race and possibly more than one culture so that they grow up feeling confident with their sense of identity and prepare to confront a world that still only seems to see people in black and white. Joining me today are two mothers of multiracial children who in their own unique ways are helping to educate other parents and guardians about this increasingly important topic. Sharon H. Chang is an award-winning author, photographer, and activist with a lens on racism, social justice, and the Asian American diaspora. She is the author of the critically acclaimed academic book, Raising Mixed Race, Multiracial Asian Children in a Post-Racial World, and the book, Hapa Tales and Other Lies, a mixed-race memoir about the Hawaii I never knew. Sharon's writing has also appeared in publications including BuzzFeed, Think Progress, Racism Review, and Hyphen Magazine. She was named the 2015 Social Justice Commentator of the Year by the Seattle Globalist. Rizvan Foxhall is an occupational therapist and certified positive discipline parent educator and coach. In 2006, Rizvan founded the Peak Skill Chapter of the Children's Theater Company, which is dedicated to building character on stage by instilling in children a sense that they can be a voice of positive change in the world. Rizvan is also the founder and executive director of New Era Creative, a nonprofit charitable organization that offers year-long creative and innovative programs for children and youth while also providing parenting support. I'm really excited to get into this parenting conversation, but you know before we do, we have to take a break for a Melting Pot Minute. Today's Melting Pot Minute is brought to you by Crazy Talk. Crazy Talk. Talk that just don't make no sense. Crazy Talk. Hello, Melting Pot community. If you listened to our last episode on white supremacy, you may recall that I mentioned that I would be introducing a new segment on the podcast called Laugh or You'll Cry. In this segment, I will be sharing examples of peak racist white supremacist nonsense that passes as normal in our convoluted excuse of a just society. Examples that are so absurd that they make you want to laugh. (laughs) Or else you'd have to cry. For today's Laugh or You'll Cry segment, I want to tell you about selling your house while black. Now, I know you've heard about the dangers of driving while black, walking in your neighborhood while black, barbecuing while black, waiting in a Starbucks for your white friend while black. Sadly, we are all only too aware as Black people, that if we do any of those aforementioned activities, we are likely to find ourselves arrested or even shot by law enforcement. So we have to drive, barbecue, and wait at Starbucks on high alert and always take precautions so we don't appear, you know, too Black or too dangerous. Well, did you know that selling your house while Black is also a thing? Selling your house while Black doesn't pose a threat to your physical body, but it can pose a threat to your wallet and your emotions if you don't do it right. And here's what I mean. 
if you're a black person and you want to sell your house, you have to de-black or unblack the house before you can show it to other people. You literally have to remove any and all visual evidence that black people live in your house. That picture of grandma on the mantle? Take it down. Your daughter's black cabbage patch kid? Hide it. Your African mask that you bought on that trip to the motherland? Give them to your cousin until the sale goes through. And by all means, take that giant poster of Angela Davis hanging over your desk down. So not only should you remove the blackness, you should probably run out to Ikea and buy some of those pre-populated with pretty white people picture frames and put those all over your house to throw people off. I recently sold my house. And just to make sure, I put two dolls on my daughter's bed, a Mulan doll and a Tinkerbell. I figured that would keep everybody happy. But the sad fact is that even in 2019, people don't want to buy a house that Black people lived in. I've moved many times in my 40-plus years, both in the Midwest and on the East Coast, and it's always the same. But honestly, I never really stopped to think how absurd this practice was until one of my colleagues, a distinguished gentleman with a home worth close to a million dollars, started bringing his wife's collection of African dolls into the office. I asked him what was going on, and he said, we're moving, and I knew. He had to de-black his house. The truth is, according to a study by the Brookings Institute, even when homeowners have similar homes and incomes, Black-owned homes were valued at 18% less than white-owned homes. So whether our homes are worth $1 million or $1, Whether we're award-winning journalists or drug dealers, it doesn't matter. Our homes are undesirable and undervalued. And that's not funny. But we laugh about it as we give our house a white makeover or we cry. And this has been a Melting Pot Minute. Now, let's get to our conversation with Sharon and Rizvon. Welcome to My American Melting Pot, Rizvon and Sharon. Hi. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you both here today. This conversation is one that's near and dear to my heart. But before we get started, I feel like I have to set the stage a little bit Because some people might be wondering, why do we need to have a conversation about raising multiracial children? Aren't multiracial children just children? Obviously, they are children, but their ethnic identity does present unique challenges for parents. And I'm going to start out by just saying that I myself am a Black woman married to a Spanish man, and I am raising three biracial, bicultural, bilingual children who also all happen to have unique skin tones and hair textures. So they all look kind of racially different from one another. And as a parent, I've had a very different parenting experience than I thought I would have before I knew that I was going to marry someone who was both different from me racially and ethnically. And I am not alone. One in seven U.S. infants, which is about 14% of the population of children in this country, 
are multiracial or multi-ethnic. These are facts from 2015. And that number is basically triple the number from 1980. And by 2060, the number of multiracial Americans is supposed to be three times larger than it is now. So this is a population that is growing exponentially. So this is a group of people, this is a group of children in particular, that we need to be paying attention to. So before we start kind of dissecting this parenting conversation, can you two tell us your ethnic background and the ethnic background of your children and how many children you have? And Rizvan, why don't we start with you? Hi. So um, I am a Black mother raising two biracial children. My husband is American, Caucasian. So I'm raising two biracial kids, and it's been quite a journey. And Riz, you are originally from what country? So I'm originally, yes, that's important. I'm originally from Nigeria, and I've been living in the U.S. for roughly 31 years. Okay. And Sharon, what about you? Tell us about your ethnic background and of your child. Yeah, so I am a second-generation Taiwanese mixed American. My father's a Taiwanese immigrant. My mother's a white American woman from New England. And my husband is also biracial. He is also second-generation Asian-American. He's Japanese mixed American. His mother is a Japanese immigrant, and his father is a white American. So we're raising one child, a son, who is currently nine years old. And I don't know if you would call him by, I guess you would still call him biracial, but I definitely think he represents these subsequent generations of kids that are coming where both parents might be mixed and that the definition gets a little more complicated. So I feel like the three of us right here are pretty representative. I mean, we've, we cover a <laughs> wide spectrum. We have a spectrum of ages. My kids are 17, 14, and 7. I'm like, uh, wait, oh yeah, 17, 14, and 7. <laughs> and Riz, how old are your kids again? So my kids are 19 and 16. 19 I can't believe it. Oh my gosh. And you have a boy and a girl, right? And I have a boy and a girl, yes. And Sharon, you said your son is 9, nine. correct? Yes. Okay. So I want to ask you both just as parents, not necessarily as experts yet, but as parents, what kinds of things did you do or are you doing to ensure that your children have a healthy sense of identity, however you want to interpret that? Sharon, let's start with you. Oh, gosh. I do feel having also a nine-year-old that I'm still in the middle of that journey. And if you ask me this question nine years from now, I'm probably going to have a different answer. But at least at this moment with a nine-year-old, I would say the first things that pop to mind are just talking about the fact that he's mixed race at all and not necessarily knowing what that even is going to look like it. But nobody talked to me about that really growing up. It wasn't a conversation that was on the table. So just putting the conversation on the table number one. And number two, having a lot of humility around it. Because one thing I know from my own experience and then from my husband's experience, and then also doing a lot of community work with other multiracial people, as we all have very different experiences. And so what I think his experience is going to be is very likely not to be it at all. So just entering the conversation with more questions and more open-ended mentality rather than me being like an instructor. And then the last thing is trying to figure out ways to expose him to his culture. We just came back from Asia, which was his first time there, as not only an Asian American, but a transnational kid. Uh, I still haven't figured out fully what that looks like, but we're working on it. 
So you're, that's um, really interesting to hear about how you're talking, even though he's nine, which, you know, is pretty young, but you're already talking about identity and exposing him to his, his roots, so to speak, his ethnic roots. Riz, what about you? What have you done to ensure that your children have a strong sense of their ethnic, racial, cultural identity? For me, it's been a number of different things, you know, exposing my kids to um, people of different culture, being very, being comfortable myself about talking about race and and making sure that it's not something like we pretend doesn't exist, but rather like it's ongoing for me too. It's a journey, you know, as they grow from very little, recognizing that society sees me as, in my case, my children are seen as black kids in this country. So um, having that conversation from very young about it, but, you know, I think for mixed um, parents of mixed-race kids, we have a huge responsibility to instill this sense of self-worth and confidence within our children. And I think one of the ways we can do is really check how comfortable we are. For me, I've had to really you know, get comfortable about how I talk about race and talk with my children about it and really inform them about the history of this country and the, and talk about racism in small doses depending on their age and what they can handle, you know, but being really frank with them, but also at the same time exposing them to different kinds of foods and people and and really creating a culture in which they feel comfortable in their own skin but they also learn to appreciate people of different cultures. And my kids have been to Africa and um, traveling with them. I mean, these are different ways in which I just expose them to, like, the reality that people are different and we are all still, you know, we come with our uniqueness and beauty of different cultures, you know, just getting them so that they feel really comfortable in their own skin and also appreciate other people's differences. That's really great to hear. Um I know that for myself, you know, I think that the things that you both mentioned are things that I've tried to do with my children as well uh, in terms of exposing them to different people, talking about race and identity from a very early age. But I have to say that, um, and actually also, Rizvan, what you were saying is being comfortable myself. I think that one of the things that I had to learn very early on, I assumed that I was going to be raising Black children because I'm Black, right? (laughs) Um, And it wasn't until I went to a Loving Day conference that was mostly for mixed-race people, I was there to talk about hair because my first book, Hair Story, had just recently come out. And I was there to talk about hair to white parents of Black children. And it just dawned on me when I was there that I'm not raising Black children, that being biracial is an identity in and of itself. And so I had to check myself. I had to check my parenting plan because... My kids are also Spanish, and that doesn't just mean that they're going to speak Spanish but be Black, right? So I had to educate myself about what that meant, that my children's identity was actually different than mine, and I couldn't just put on them that they were Black like me and that the lessons that I had planned, you know, I was ready to be the mother of Black children, ready to tell them, like, be proud of your skin color, be proud of your kinky, curly hair— Well, guess what? My daughter has really, really, really pale skin. You know, she could pass for white and her hair is kind of straight. So (laughs) all of my lessons that I had planned went out the window. And so I think that to a certain extent, like you said, Rizvan, 
educating myself and being comfortable myself and actually having a plan was something that I had to do. Did either of you, do you feel like you actually have a plan, a parenting plan as it relates to identity for your children or are you winging it? <laughs> Good question. Does any parent have uh, a plan, really? I think a combination, <laughs> maybe, of a plan and winging it at the same time, you know. A com- so, Riz, you do have a plan, but obviously with all things parenting. I mean, I think for me, the plan is just as far as being a parent is concerned, it's less has to do with race, but has to do with really getting my kids to see that they have potential and that they can be an um anything they choose to be, right? And that this life is their journey and really to give them the life skills that they need to empower them to be courageous, to be kind. And those, in terms of plans, that's the plan that as a parent is to instill those life skills and characteristics within them. And then with race, I had to wing it a lot because honestly, Laurie, when I came to this country, I came from Nigeria via India. So I lived in India for eight years at an international boarding school in a hill station, you know, with kids from all over the country, uh, world, I mean. So I grew up in a very diverse community of kids, you know, with different religions too. I mean, the school was not perfect, but I would say in terms of race and culture, it was kind of a little utopia. So coming to America, I was just like, I was dropped here at 18. Um, not dropped, but <laughs> came here to go to college. And it's uh, then all of a sudden, you know, being Black became a major thing that I had to confront. So it took me years to come to terms with what it means to be Black in America. And so having children and having mixed-race children... I kind of had to learn. So I started reading because I had my own assumptions about Black Americans and being Black, you know, and it all messed up because I didn't know the history of this country. So I had to do a lot of learning because I was like, wow, if I'm going to raise these biracial kids to understand this culture and to have pride in both being Black and white, you know, what does that look like? So there was a lot of just like learning and and researching and learning about the history. And I still am uncovering a lot about this culture and racism and white supremacy. You know, I'm learning a lot still. That's that's actually, I feel like, almost a bonus raising biracial children because you can't make assumptions. You have to learn. Like, you can't just do, like, this is what my parents did. So you actually have to be an active parent. Sharon, what about you? Did you have a plan and you yourself are mixed race, so you might have said, oh, I know how to do this. So did you have a plan to make sure your son had a strong sense of identity as a multiracial child? So I knew what I didn't want to do. (laughs) And I thought that I, I knew how to teach a young person to be mixed. But when I actually was pregnant and it was like coming up fast, I was like, wait a second, I actually really don't know how to like even talk about being mixed race in this country because nobody talked to me about it when I was growing up and it wasn't as broad of a public conversation as it is now. I mean, now we even have like resources and academic books and films and all these things we can turn to, but there really wasn't much when I was growing up or at least in the circles that I was in and the things that did exist maybe weren't so positive and affirming. So like I've lived the experience of a mixed race person, but I didn't necessarily have 
like a really well-developed understanding of that or like even a systemic analysis or anything. So similar, I also needed to do a lot of learning and research and reading. And I ended up writing a book (laughs) out of all that research. (laughs) And for me, I also had to learn a lot about race, even though I'm American, because I had an immigrant parent and a white parent who really avoided that subject. So I wasn't taught much about it. And they had biases as well. And then, of course, in our school systems, kids still don't learn much. So there was a lot of unlearning and relearning that I had to do to even begin a... Because if we talk about mixed race, we're talking about race, right? So I couldn't even begin the conversation about multiraciality with my kid until I could understand race. So there was a lot of learning I had to do to even begin. Yeah, That's really a good point you just made that you can't start talking about being mixed race if you don't understand race, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's the key thing right there. And that's probably, you know, we're going to get into that a little bit more. But before we do get into that, I want to just talk about some actual resources that parents can use because we all just admitted we had to do a lot of reading, you know, and there are a lot more resources now than when we were kids growing up. You know, some of the things that I constantly look for are, you know, when my kids were younger, like my daughter is still seven, so I still read picture books to her. There are, I'm not going to say thousands, and I mean, it's still kind of hard to find, but I often find myself really, really intentionally bringing books home that feature mixed race characters. And I think that that's one of the things that are really important is to show your kids visual imagery and stories that show them that they're not a unicorn. There are other people like them. So that's one of my kind of methods for instilling a positive sense of self is to give my kids books that showcase kids who are mixed people, both nonfiction and fiction. Either one of you, can you um, share a resource that you have used to parent your child to help them feel confident in their identity? I also use books, but if you're thinking about other mediums, I mean, we use film and TV, and thankfully we can do that now because there have been, uh, I don't know if proliferation is, that may be too generous, but there have been more (laughs) and more films, like animated, for my kids nine, right? So more and more animated films recently where the main character was a mixed race child. So that's been really fun and amazing to watch. I'm like, wow, this is a thing now. People want to have, like just the most recent Spider-Man movie, which is incredible. That main character is mixed. I was like, oh, okay. And another favorite of ours was Big Hero 6 because that's an Asian and white mixed boy. So like that kind of stuff is really powerful. Yeah. Riz, what about you? Do you have any particular? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I can't think of one in, in particular right now, but I'm very fortunate because I have a lot of friends because of my background and how I was raised of different cultures and mixed race kids. So also exposing them to other mixed race kids, that was more what I did, just like find opportunities where we hung out with people who are multi-biracial. So they didn't feel like they were, and I think there are a lot more people who are biracial today, even though, you know, the statistics, you said, how many, one in seven? Mm-hmm. 14%. Infants, 14%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems low. I mean, maybe because I live near New York City, it just seems like I see more multiracial, or maybe it's just that I hang out with a lot more families with multiracial kids. 
But that's, you're making such a good point. And of course, not everybody can move. Although if you do want to move to the state with the most <laughs> multiracial people, move to Hawaii. Um, that's where, you know, the population, oh, really? the population of multi-ethnic people is the largest in Hawaii, which sounds like a nice place to live also. But exposure is so key for children to see other people who look like them, whose family makeup looks like theirs. And again, it is becoming more common. And if you can you know, make that happen because of, you know, your neighborhood or, you know, maybe there's an organization in your a church or whatever that has a lot of multiracial people. Exposing your kids to that is so important. If you don't have that opportunity because of where you live, again, then you turn to books, you turn to movies. But you also have a growing sense of the multiracial community and having organizations, conferences, festivals, There are conferences like the Mixed Remixed Festival, which is a literary and film festival. There really is a growing sense of community. And I think that people need to tap into those communities because children see that they're not the last black unicorn, I like to say, Um, (laughs) that they get to see others like them in community, right? And it's not like black and white is the only thing you're going to see, or you'll see that people are mixed so many variations of mix. I remember when I took my eldest son to his first mixed race conference and he sat in the room. He was a little mad that I made him go because he thought it was going to be boring. And he sat in the room and he was like, oh my God, these are my people. And I was like, (laughs) yes, these are your people. And that was really affirming. So I think sometimes, a lot of times I should say, that making a kid feel really confident is seeing that he's not alone to show them in any way you can that there are lots of people like them out there in the world. So I want to jump to this question of race, though, how race affects parenting mixed-race children. Apparently, there have been multiple studies about mixed-race persons' identity formation, their sense of self and confidence, and how it's affected based on which parent is which ethnicity. When we are talking about a mixed-race child where one parent is white, there is, you know, studies that show that when a child of mixed race has a white mother, that the white mothers face larger challenges in being seen as a fit parent for a child of color. And a lot of people actually, this podcast episode was actually inspired by a Facebook group that I'm a part of where a lot of white women who are raising mixed race children you know, struggle with understanding, you know, how to raise a child who's confident in their racial identity when they present as non-white. So I wanted to ask you both, because we've all just admitted that even though we are all women of color, we had to educate ourselves for different reasons, but we all had to educate ourselves. What would you say to a white parent who really wants to give their child a strong sense of their identity, but they don't have any personal experience as a person of color themselves? How do they make sure that they are giving their kid the best sense of self? Sharon, let's start with you. Well, I have a white mother, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can speak from personal experience. But I I give a lot of talks on um, talking with your kids about race. And then I have also started doing um, raising mixed kids workshops for, at this point, a lot of public schools. So Seattle and Bellevue. And 
I would say one thing that I am consistently finding myself needing to encourage white parents to do is learn how to acknowledge their whiteness and their privilege. And if they can't do that, then there is no conversation beyond it. So I think a lot of parents, particularly white parents, because race is invisible to them, they just want to jump straight to, oh, I want to talk about you being multiracial. And it's like, well, it can't really do that until you acknowledge that you're white. So in my first book, for example, which was on you know, raising mixed kids, and I interviewed about 68 parents of over 70 young multiracial children. When I asked parents, how do you feel about being whatever your race is, white parents were the ones who were the most resistant to even acknowledging their race. And these were all really educated people, but they would say things like, well, I'm not really white, or I'm not white like other people are white, or, you know, it's not what I would have chosen for myself if I could have chosen it. That was like a big red flag to me. And I, I still see that to this day in the talks that I do is just white parents love their children, but then they don't want to do that painful work of admitting their enormous privilege as white people and being on the other end of, um, you know, a lot of hurt that can come at their own family. So for me, it's just encouraging white parents to do that acknowledgement. It's going to mean a lot to your kids more than you realize and being humble about it and acknowledging that you're not going to be the leader in a conversation about racial oppression in your family. Wow. Say that last line again. Oh, yeah. You're, you're not going to be the leader in a conversation about racial oppression in your family. Because I just think that parents have this idea like we're the instructors or teachers of our children. And for mixed race kids and kids of color in general, if you have parents who don't share your identity... They don't get to do that for you. And particularly in the case of white parents who are raising kids of color, that gulf is even wider, right? It's like you do need to learn how to take a back seat. You need to acknowledge your whiteness and your privilege and that you don't know what this looks like and that your children get to lead that conversation. And your job is going to be to acknowledge that you don't know and how you show up as an ally or an accomplice in supporting your child. Does that mean sometimes that maybe you have to bring in someone else to be that expert to help your child? I mean, let's say, for example, if it's like a, maybe it's a single mom or maybe the other person isn't involved, whatever. But just, so that means you might have to actually get someone else in there to help you parent, which sometimes, like you said, it requires humbling, right? To admit that you don't have all the answers. I mean, and this is the part of racism that's painful is that it has divided us from each other for so many hundreds of years. So then we see that in racial intrusion into mixed race families where like a parent who's a different race than their child can only like there's just certain things they can't get close to. So in our dream world, when racism doesn't exist, <laughs> this will be a moot point, but that's going to be a while. So until then, yeah, I mean, getting help, getting support, making sure your mixed kids are around a lot of other mixed people. All those things are really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Rizvan, in your family, you said your husband is white. Mm-hmm. How did you navigate these kind of conversations if they came up where you had to talk about something that was racially charged or something? Does your husband take a back seat? Did he have troubles with that? Like, how did you navigate that as, you know, you're the parents together, mm-hmm. but sometimes were there times that you had to say, I have to handle this? Definitely. You know, my husband, I'm very fortunate, actually, because my husband is, uh, we're kind of on the same page 
when it comes to, you know, dealing with race. And he's educated himself a lot about this issue because his children's experience, their lived experience is going to be different from his experience, right, as a white male. And I love what Sharon says about the white parent in the mix having to take a backseat because they're not going to be the leader in this conversation about race. Their children's experiences are going to be very different from their own and they need to acknowledge their privilege you know, and in a way also acknowledge their fragility, mm. you know, because there is this sense, you know, we as parents, you know, we want our children to acknowledge both races and we teach them to acknowledge both races, but the world sees them differently, right? So I think parents, white parents cannot take this um, colorblind attitude, right? Because it won't help their children grow, and need to understand, you know, really learn about what racism is and the systemic, how it infiltrates every system in this country. So if we take this colorblind because your parent is half white and, you know, you have a white and black parent or you have mixed race children, that we're going to pretend that we don't see color. But that's not how the world is going to treat them, right? So I think it's important that white parents of biracial kids really do the work. And as you said, Laurie, maybe invite people who know and learn and be open to learn and also letting, you know, with humility, as Sharon says, right? Because they're not going to be the leader in this conversation. Yeah, I'm literally like tingling here, you guys. I just, this is, this is our lived experience, right? And, um, you know, I think for white people, it is difficult to, especially as a parent, it is difficult to say like, I will never understand what it's like to walk through the world in your skin, right? And I'm glad you brought up that term colorblind, Riz, because a lot of parents think that the best thing that they can do is tell their children, I love you no matter what. I love you, whether your skin was black or green or yellow, you know, it doesn't matter, but it does. And like, you know, the world isn't colorblind. We don't live in a colorblind society. So any parent who tries to parent their children in a colorblind home is literally doing such a disservice. You're hobbling your child so that they are not prepared for what's going to face them outside the doors of their home. My last book that I wrote, Same Family, Different Colors, I interviewed a child psychologist who said that what parents need to do is to normalize difference, right? Not to be colorblind, but to tell their children, to teach their children that different is normal. And mom Mm -hmm. and dad are not the same color. You're not the same color. One's not good, one's not bad. But let's talk about how our differences are going to be perceived and then proceed from there, right? There's no such thing as being colorblind. Even dogs. People say, well, dogs, are, dogs aren't even fully colorblind. Okay. <laughs> like that word shouldn't even really exist. So, yeah, we shouldn't refer to anyone really actually being colorblind. And you said, you know, what they're going to face when they walk out the door. I would also add what they're going to face inside their own home. That's one thing that also came up when I was doing research for my first book. And it's something that has consistently come up in all the work I've done with multiracial people since and multiracial families is that for mixed kids who come from partial white descent, a lot of the racism that they face comes from their own family members. And that's a really painful thing to have to talk about. But it's very like I've seen it enough in research and anecdotally to know that this is very true. And so for white parents, part of working on acknowledging your whiteness and privilege and learning how to show up for your children 
of color and your partners of color is also going to be acknowledging maybe some of your own behaviors that are biased or prejudiced and also figuring out how to handle white family that's prejudiced, racist, or biased. I will give a very painful example from my own life (laughs) that I just discovered recently, and I can't believe I've been sharing this widely, but I think this is part of the work. I discovered last summer some old pictures of myself with the help of a family member from when I was a toddler during Halloween. More than once, my white mother dressed me up as a China doll. That was the costume that she took me out in. And it was really upsetting to find those pictures, and I was too little to remember, but I know that that has had an impact on how I see myself because I drew China dolls as a young girl. Like that's what I would draw in in a way to try to understand who I was. So if you work on your whiteness, it will help you not do those things. (laughs) Is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the, um, you know, having a family members, whether it's immediate family or extended family, I mean, that's something to also that we have to unpack. You know, how do you deal with family members that are racist, plain and simple. When you have family members who are saying horrible things, or maybe they don't call your kids the N-word, but they're still prejudiced and speak very poorly of people of color. Like, how do you deal with that as a parent? Because those may be your parents or your Uncle Charlie or whatever. What's your responsibility as a parent to your child when you have family members who are racist? Riz, I'm going to throw that at you just to start. (laughs) (laughs) When things come up, with my family, it's not so much, um, you know, I mean, we all live in this America, we all breathe the smog of racism. So everybody, even, you know, black families have this internalized form of inferiority complex sometimes, you know, because in my family, I see more, of course, my family, when they hear this, you know, I'm going to get into trouble, but anyway. <laughs> in my family, it's less about, I mean, my husband has always been accepted in my family, and um, we've done a lot of work to accept people of different colors. You know, growing up, my parents, because of their religious belief, were very much about stamping out racism, so to speak, by becoming more tolerant and equality of, of different races and everything. So we grew up with that kind of belief system. But, you know, white supremacy is really insidious. It's everywhere, you know. So the things I hear, which bugs me from my family, is these little microaggressions. Because my kids are, like, paler than anyone else in my family, So the comments about them being paler and how, you know, it kind of sets them apart from their other family members, almost as if the lighter skin is kind of revered, so to Mm, speak. And, And that bothers me because it's not good for my children, but neither is it good for our other family members who are darker skin. You know, Mm. things like that, that really bothers me personally. It's deep. And also, you know, living in a culture where I'm dark skin, Nigerians, we're dark. But I don't know, the bleaching scream industry is serious in Nigeria, you know? So for me, always like this having, I mean, you talk about colorism, this trying to like get whiter, you know, our culture. So then here comes my kids who are like lighter. And so it's like, wow, they have this skin that, you know, other Africans are like trying to have by bleaching their skin. So, you know, things like that really 
It's difficult. So I have to have these conversations with my kids so that they understand, you know, really talk to them about white supremacy and how that is in every thing. And it's been transported to Africa, too. Because it's hard to be a mixed race kid where it's like, on the one hand, you know, you have darker skinned people. Sometimes like they look at you and they kind of put you on this pedestal, so to speak, as being lighter and the hair is a little bit looser and longer or whatever on the one hand. And then it's hard for them to also fit in being they can't claim white. (laughs) They're kind of in between there where, you know, society sees them as black, then black people put them aside. So they're like in this weird middle stage, you know, trying to figure out where they belong. So I think as a parent, I've always like had the conversation, but really giving them the background, the history is very important. Then becomes really important so that they get why people like that. I really appreciate that point about what I call like liminal space, sort of living in liminal space is a often consistent experience for a lot of multiracial people of various backgrounds. And it comes from this like racial construct, right? Where we're all shoved into just a handful of categories, single categories. And if you don't fit, then you're in between. That's a very specific experience that multiracial people have that other racial identities don't have. And sometimes I don't No folks understand how tricky that can be and how much it can be confusing or hurtful or disorienting. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, there's a couple of things that I want to go that, Rizvan, you just pulled out. Like one of the things that I did want to talk about as we segued away from talking about just white people having to check their privilege is that people of color, Black people, Asian people, whatever, that we also have our issues that we need to talk about. And you brought one up very clearly, you know, colorism and privileging kids with lighter skin. And, you know, that's very real. And if you are a Black person in America or other richly melanated, um, there is a making those children feel like they're special because they have lighter skin or looser curled hair or making them feel horrible because people exactly. think that they're like putting on airs or they think they're better than everybody else. And it's, of course, through no fault of their own. And yet they have to contend with, again, not white, but not black enough to just be black and having all of these other assumptions put on their identity. And that's also something that you have to deal with. Um, Sharon, can you talk a little bit about what kind of issues, and I don't expect you to speak for every single Asian person on the planet, (laughs) but (laughs) like, what are the kind of issues that people, you know, only behind closed doors talk about when you have a mixed race child as the Asian parent? Right. We, we see also similar colorism to like what we were talking about in Nigeria that, you know, bleaching creams exist in Asia also and um, preference for lighter skin, which is also comes from like a classist history, but it definitely met with white supremacy and fused with it. So we see that as well. I would say the lightning creams are probably more popular abroad than they are in Asian America. But since Asian America is still largely, largely immigrant, uh, we're seeing still a lot of importing of those ideals from our homelands. So that would be one of the bigger differences is because of exclusion laws that kept Asians out of the United States for so long. We're still really close to immigration in a lot of our families. So there's also a narrative that gets tied into mixed kids about how American you are. 
And if you're a certain kind of mix, you may be seen as more legitimately American and as belonging more and not being seen as a foreigner because this is the racism that a lot of Asian people face in this country is that you're a forever foreigner no matter how many generations you've been here if you look a certain way and mixed Light mixed people are seen as exempt from that. But I will say at the same time, there's a lot of anti-blackness in the Asian community, which is probably not news to you or a lot of listeners. So there are certain types of Asian mixed people and children that are valued, particularly light skinned and mixed with white. And then the darker you get, the more discrimination and prejudice you're going to get. And like in Asia, you will see a lot of pop stars and actresses and models are actually mixed people. They tend to be light people. So that's kind of a rundown of what we're looking at. Um, So, but also similarly where you're mixed and you're sort of put up on a pedestal if you're a certain kind of mixed, um, but you're never really seen and you may be given like American belonging or you're perceived as having American belonging, but you won't be seen as like fully Asian, maybe by Asian Americans, like if you go to Hawaii or something like that. But we just went to Japan and Taiwan, which is where our families are from. And I don't think for a second anyone there thought we were Japanese or Taiwanese. Like they wouldn't say that to us. (laughs) We're foreigners, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah. That's kind of our narrative in our family and things we're also trying to counter-narrate. Yeah. And these are such strong identity issues. And in um, Same Family, Different Colors, we talk about, you know, feeling this this sense of um, isolation when you're not clearly of this ethnic group and you're not clearly of that ethnic group. So where do you belong? You know, and I think that's what this original question was about. Like, how do we give our mixed race children a strong sense of identity? And it's hard when the people whose ethnic culture that they belong to not necessarily aren't rejecting them, but it's not such a clear cut case, right? By their visual appearance, it's not clear that you are African-American. It's not clear that you're Taiwanese. It's not clear, right? Your Mm -hmm. face tells me you're something else, so I don't know what to do. There are studies that show that all people get nervous. They're not comfortable with racial ambiguity. So Mm -hmm. when we're not comfortable with something, we tend to respond negatively. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of hardwired to want to categorize people. And so if I can't figure out where to put you, I'm not going to deal with you or I'm going to deal with you in a kind of an unpleasant way. So all of our beautiful children are faced with that, you know, whether they feel like really confident, like, yeah, I'm black and I'm Spanish or, you know, I'm this and I'm that. Still, they have to go into a world where they'll still confront people who feel uncomfortable with them simply because they can't place them. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's just a reality. And that's why, again, this conversation is so important because we have to do almost extra work. Right. I think we have to do almost extra work because our kids can't just be like good students. Right. And good people. They also have to have an extra sense of self-confidence because no matter what, they're probably going to get asked that question, what are you? Hmm. So mothers and experts, I'm asking, what do you tell your kids to answer when people say, what are you? Because it's going to come up. Riz, what do your kids say? They're older, so maybe they've thought about this. So my kids... It's interesting because I did kind of interview them before this interview, (laughs) you know, just to get a sense of where they were and what, um, you know, what they think about being mixed. Because even though we've had lots of conversations about race and I love talking to my kids about race, 
I just wanted to get a sense of where they are. And uh, I feel like both my kids from talking to them recently have a good sense of who they are and, and self-confidence. For both of them, I've never like kind of told them what to claim, so to speak, and just like kind of give them, you know, the education, the learning. We're learning together and everything and just let them decide. But I think both of them would claim to be Black, not because they don't feel connected to the white side of their family, just because society sees them as Blacks. And when they move in the world, that's what's placed upon them. But I think they also were very clear that they love their, you know, father and their heritage as white, as half, biracial, right? So they are very clear about that and understand that. But I think for them, they've just decided it's just easier to go with what society considers them, which is um, Black. Um, They don't say I'm biracial or whatever. But that's for both of them. That's what they came to, I think, on their own. Well, at least that's what I understand <laughs> from yeah. my interview of them. That makes um, total sense. Sharon, what about you? And your son is only nine, but I'm yeah, sure so it's come up she, in some way, maybe? Maybe not. It's it's come up, but I think at, at this point he's more parroting me. And I will be very curious to see, you know, developmentally as he changes, as specifically as we're approaching like pre-adolescence and the teenage years, I think that's a time when kids really start to claim and define their own identities, often separate from us. So we'll see. But at the moment, I mean, we're using the word mixed a lot, um, but I think that's really imperfect language and a lot of people find it super triggering. So, I mean, for lack of anything better, we talk about that. We also, I have been strongly advising him to not refer to himself in fractions and percentages because I think it's self-harming for multiracial people to do that too much because we aren't divided into pieces. We're whole people too. Whether or not he decides to follow my advice, we'll see. And then, you know, I think he experiments with calling himself Japanese, Taiwanese, and white. I have let him know that in this country, he can't really claim whiteness, even though that's part of his heritage, because he reads Asian enough that he won't be accepted as fully white. So we're not trying to claim that, but he understands that he has white family and that's part of his heritage. And then I think we're playing around with like, my husband and I also do this. This is true for a lot of mixed people is that throughout your life, you will claim different things and your identities will shift depending on where you're at, who you're with. And so currently I think we're playing with words like Asian American, Asian mixed American, you know, all of that stuff. And we'll just see what he lands on. Um, It'll be interesting. My kids also say that they're African-American, recognizing that I'm from Africa. Mm. You know, so they say that too. And also, um, one of the, talking to Jared, you know, my son, one of the things, you know, we discuss is one of the reasons why it's just easier for them to claim black is because they can't claim white. Mm. You know, (laughs) it's just like, it's, it's not an option for them. Right to claim white. So it's kind of like society boxes them into this, you know, Mm -hmm. into this group. And also claiming mixed race is problematic too. Why do you say that? Why why is that? Because, you know, being in this like middle, you know, stage where it's like sometimes Black people see them a certain way and then they can't claim white. So being mixed, it's, I don't know, I just feel like from conversations I've had with them, that it just seems easier mm-hmm. to claim mm-hmm. black right. mm-hmm. than 
to claim mixed or to claim white. But as Sharon was saying, you know, who knows as they get older, where they'll be and what they'll decide. But I'm just letting that be their choice. Both my husband and I grew up with a white parent and then an immigrant parent. And so we don't look like our parents. And we grew up with a lot of those intrusive questions like, what are you? You know, my mom got asked if I was adopted like a Vietnam War baby, you know, like war orphan, um, that kind of stuff, which you'll hear a lot from very visibly mixed race families. Right. But our son, which has surprised us, is growing up in a really different situation where he does look like his parents. Even though we're all mixed, we actually now all look like each other. So we have not gotten the kind of questioning, which is really interesting to me, that my husband and I grew up with. And so for my son, he's not, so far, has not experienced the same kind of dysphoria around that at an early age that we did, because I think people quickly like do a scan and like, oh, they kind of all look like each other and they don't feel that huge discomfort right away. That said, we there are situations we'll go into, like going to Chinatown or something like that, where we'll get like the first, the double take and then the triple take, like, oh, they're all mixed. What's going on there? Um, but it's different. It's just different. It's really interesting that when I was thinking about, you know, what are the things that are actually different about raising a mixed race child versus a monoracial child, if you will? These terms are so weird. I always feel strange when I say things (laughs) like that. But um, but like one of the things that, you know, I feel like I've never heard. No one has ever said to me, your child looks just like you. Right. Like people have to look twice to see the similarities. And I find it fascinating. And I'm the one who stares when I see a parent and child who really look alike. I'm like, oh, my gosh, look at the resemblance there. That's incredible. <laughs> but that's literally something no one has ever said to me is like, your your daughter looks just like mm. you. Um, never. And I'm sure that never will happen because our skin tones are different. And even though mm. there may be similarities, people don't, like you said, use, use the word scan. Oh, y'all kind of look alike, so fine. I've been asked if I was the nanny. My husband has been asked if he adopted my eldest son. Like, there's never that kind of, Obviously, you you people belong together. I mean, to this day, our mm-hmm. family is asked, like, we're questioned as a family. People, you can see that they're trying to figure out how we fit. Do we fit? And that's a completely different experience for families that are the same color or the same ethnic background. That's just a very different parenting experience that you're going to have when your kids don't match you. And we know um, from a previous episode we did on the show, you know, even to the point of danger where people question, where police are called because Mm -hmm. maybe you kidnapped your child, maybe that child, you stole that child, depending on the circumstances. You know, your parenting experience is different. It really is different. Um, And I don't want to paint it as all bad or all negative, but there really are unique experiences that come when you and your child don't share the same skin tone, hair type, you know, that you are of different race. Um, So I want to like wrap this up with this final question that it's kind of a theoretical question, but what do you guys say to people who actually believe that multiracial children are going to save the world by making race obsolete, that mixed race kids are the future? I just gave the first big workshop on raising mixed kids in Seattle for Seattle's central area public elementary schools. And, um, you know, we had like 200 RSVPs and there was like 90 people who turned up. It was a huge turnout. And I go in the gate by saying, I need you to all agree with me that having mixed kids will not solve 
racism. Like, we're not even starting this night without coming to that agreement because we're not going to get anywhere if you truly believe that. And one of the things I'll say is there's absolutely no proof that mixing or more multiracial populations makes racism go away. And we can look to places like Hawaii and Brazil to see that that's true. So that's what I usually start with. Yeah. If you understand white supremacy, if you understand how it works, if you understand that there's this hierarchy of privilege based on features, that mixing peoples does not eliminate this system of white supremacy, of racism that we have. I mean, here's a great, another great example. The, the mixed race identifying population has exploded, you know, sort of growing super quickly. And Trump was just elected president. <laughs> so it's like there's clearly no correlation. You know what I mean? It's like not true. <laughs> right. Ex- thank you for that. And also, you know, there are study upon study upon study upon study and research that mixed race people face discrimination The more they look like Black or Native American, those numbers go higher. But any person who is not white experiences discrimination, racial discrimination. So again, mixed race people experience levels of discrimination as high as or similar to people of single race. As long as they're perceived as non-white, they are on the receiving end of racial discrimination. So um, Riz, did you have anything else to add to that? Yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, it's it's kind of like this colorblind attitude that you just mentioned that, you know, if we just mix people marry across different races, things will go away. But that's another way of keeping the system exactly where it is, because white supremacy, the system of racism, there's so much to dismantle it, you know? It's so much work to dismantle it and just getting married and then saying, oh, you know, having mixed race kids will all of a sudden solve everything. It's it's just not going to work. That means we're not really trying to get to the root of the problem. Yeah. I mean, I essentially, we really have to start seeing each other, really understanding what the oneness of humanity really means and will look like, you know, and how really understanding this myth, this construct of race that we've created, you know, and that needs to be dismantled. And that's going to be something that we collectively have to, as humanity, have to work towards. And a lot of people love to, they'd love for it to be that simple. Right. (laughs) You know, but it isn't, you know, 400 years or so of this is not going to just go away because people just get married, you know, and have mixed race kids without getting to the root of the problem. So obviously people getting married and having mixed race children is not going to solve the world's problems. But I think on the other hand, if people educate themselves and they really, as we have said, humble themselves and understand that raising a healthy generation of mixed race kids is a new thing. Um, And luckily, there are lots of resources. There are other people out there doing it and making those connections. And again, educating ourselves. That's where I think the answers are going to be. So I want to thank you both for having this conversation with me. Um, Sharon, can you tell everybody if we want to read your books and find out where you might be giving workshops and the Northwest or maybe other parts of the United States, how can we keep up with you? Thanks. Yeah. And I need to give a big, warm hug of gratitude back to you for having me on because you're awesome. And this whole conversation has been awesome. So gratitude to all of you. I'm on social media in the typical places, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can search my name, Sharon H. Chang. And my first book, I think you mentioned earlier, is Raising Mixed Race. 
you can find also online. And then my newest book, Hoppa Tales, just came out. I don't have any huge book talks coming up because I just wrapped my book tour for Hoppa Tales, but you can keep up to date with me, again, by following me on social media or at my website, SharonHChang.com. Rizbad, what about you? Where can people find out about your theater company and other um, work that you're doing? So I'm online, um, RizwanFoxall.com is my website where I do, that's where people can find out about my parents' coaching work and occupational therapy and and then my project here in Peekskill, New Era Creative Space is the organization. So the website is necspace.org. So that's where people can find me. And we are on Facebook too. Um, and I am on Twitter and Instagram, but I must say I'm not very... Um, I'm not very good at that. So so people can go to the website. That's the best yeah, place to find you. people can go to you. the website and see what we're up to here in Peekskill. So I'll have links to both of your websites and social media handles on myamericanmeltingpot.com. I hope that conversation was helpful to someone listening today. I know it was for me. Even though I've written articles and books and blog posts about multiracial families and parenting, it's always helpful and inspiring to talk to other moms raising mixed-race kids. There's not a single rule book or manual that's going to be appropriate for everyone or answer every question. But after talking to Rizvan and Sharon today, it does seem pretty clear that as parents, we have to continuously educate ourselves about the complexities of race so we can be better parents to our mixed-race children. We have to be comfortable with these topics and issues that aren't black and white. We have to be willing to admit that we don't have all the answers, and we need to be proactive in showing our kids that being mixed race, biracial, or bicultural is normal. We need to find ways to reflect their reality back at them through books, through movies, and community. And then we have to, even though it's hard, give our kids the freedom to define their own identity. Thank you for listening to this episode of the My American Melting Pot podcast. If you enjoyed it, and I hope you did, please take a minute to write us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're not into writing reviews, just tell a friend who you think might appreciate our conversations. Thanks. Now, before you go, remember you can find the show notes for today's episode on the My American Melting Pot blog. Just visit myamericanmeltingpot.com backslash the podcast and an archive of every episode will pop up. You'll also find fresh new Melting Pot content on the blog every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And if you haven't heard, we launched the My American Melting Pot Book Club. Woohoo! Our first book club selection is an amazing new memoir about life, love, death, and the power of food and family. It's called From Scratch by Tembi Locke. Follow the Melting Pot on social for more details on how you can join the club. Episode 11 of My American Melting Pot was recorded at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia. Our editor and producer is Brad Linder. Our sound engineers are Joe Patty, Tyler McClure, and Paul Marchesani. Our PR and marketing guru is Darian Muka. And our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka. Thank you as always for listening to My American Melting Pot. And always remember to live your life in color. <laughs>